Well, welcome back to the Cordell and Cordell and Men's Divorce Podcast. I'm Scott Trout, CEO and Managing Partner of Cordell and Cordell. We continue to bring you information, talking points, uh, issues for guys before, during, and after divorce. We do it twice each week on this podcast. I'd love to hear from you. You can send us an email. We can answer your questions on this podcast or in a virtual town hall. You want to send us an email at townhalls at cordelllaw.com. That's townhalls at cordelllaw.com. Keep in mind, obviously, the things we talk about today in the podcast and our virtual town hall, it's not legal advice and not attorney-client relationship. We want you to schedule that consultation. Take the things we talk about today. Check out our YouTube channel. It has all the resources available to you with great information like we're going to talk about. And you want to schedule a consult. So give us a call. 866-DADS-LAW, 866-DADS-LAW, or check us out on the web at cordellcordell.com. Schedule that consultation around the country, including the United Kingdom. Look forward to meeting you. And today, bring you information, no different. We're joined by Ryan over in uh, South Carolina. Welcome. Thanks, Scott. So we're going to talk about contempt. Uh, it's an issue both guys deal with on both sides, uh, prosecution and defense. You know, they're either wanting to hold their former spouse, some recurrent spouse in contempt for not following an order, or there's an allegation out there uh, in which they claim, you know, hey, uh, he's in contempt and you gotta, you know, be prepared to defend it, uh, defend it and prosecute it and, and try to get rid of it. So I think it's a great topic today. Let's talk about contempt, really what it is. Um, maybe generally, let's start here and we'll get into the proof and the process. What is contempt generally? I know it's uh, you can see it called different things around the country, motions to enforce, motion to contempt. What what really is that process? Right, Scott. So, so what you just said, a motion to enforce, that's really the crux of what contempt is. The, the purpose of it, you know, even though there are pretty severe sanctions, such as putting somebody in jail, the, the real purpose of it is to enforce an existing order. You want the other party to follow the order. Um, and that's what the judges or the, the court's inherent contempt powers are designed to do. Um, you know, if somebody, if you have an order that says dad is supposed to have the kids on um, every other weekend, you know, Friday at 4 p.m. until the following Monday morning, dropping them off at school, and mom is, for whatever reason, refusing to uh, make the kids available for him, um, you can file a contempt petition to hold her in contempt of court. And the judge has a wide variety of sanctions that they can impose upon somebody who's violated a court order. Um, and the purpose, again, like I said, is not to punish somebody. This is a civil contempt issue. This is not a criminal issue. It's civil, like all things in family court. It's to really, in a way, twist the other party's arm and force them to comply with an order and say, look, th this is a court order. This is not just a suggestion. This has power behind it, and you have to follow that order. There are all kinds of uh, remedies available around the country. This is just one of them. And it has a, you know, depending upon your jurisdiction, it has some pretty significant powers. And we talk about it being civilly. And um, I know one of them could be jailing someone who fails to follow. Um, so let's talk about the proof. I know here in Missouri, um, licensed in Missouri, Illinois, and Georgia. Uh, the level of proof, and, it, and we're going to use some big words, but I think it, these words get across, at least here, and I'm curious what, what uh, your jurisdiction has the proof, and ours is a willful, contumacious disregard for a lawful court order. So willful, and then let me tag on, and the ability to comply. That's huge. So what is kind of the, the proof that you have in your jurisdiction? So I'm only licensed in South Carolina. 
Um, but our level of proof is, I think, similar to the one that you described. We might not use such fancy terms, but mm -hmm. we would use the terms willful and intentional. That, that's what you see cited over and over in case law and in contempt trials. The judges will say willful and intentional violation of a court order. And then you have to also go beyond that to the, you know, what we would call the burden of proof. It's not beyond a reasonable doubt like it would be in a criminal trial. And it's also not as low as um, a preponderance of evidence like you'd have in a, a trial for a car wreck case or something like that. It's between those two and what we call it here at least is clear and convincing evidence. If you ask 10 different judges exactly what that means, you'll probably get 10 different answers. But the really the most important part is that it's that willful and intentional violation. Somebody has to know what the order says, know that the order exists, and then make a, de a decision to not follow it and to do something in contravention of that order. There's you know, an example of something that's not willful and intentional, and I, I give this example to a lot of clients. Just in this area in Charleston, we have a very, very large bridge that connects the peninsula of Charleston to a suburb called Mount Pleasant. That bridge is notorious for really bad traffic, especially on the weekends, you know, rush hour. And I tell clients, you know, if the other party has the kids and they're supposed to bring them to you over the bridge at 6 p.m. and there's a wreck on the bridge or something and they're held up in traffic and they can't get to you until 6.45 or 7 o'clock or something like that, you're not going to hold them in contempt of court for something like that. It just simply isn't anything that they can control. It's not willful and intentional. They left their house on time. The kids were buckled in. They had their overnight bags, whatever the case may be it's not their fault is really what it comes down to. But if it's a situation where they just said, you know, um, this weekend we're going to go to the beach. Sorry. I know that there's a court order that says you're supposed to have your time with them and um, maybe we'll make it up some other time, but I've decided that we're going to go to the beach. That's yeah. willful and intentional. And you did also, I think, um, insinuate the ability to comply with the order. Somebody does have to have the ability to comply with the order. And what that usually, or when that usually comes up, is in the context of child support and other financial um, issues, which probably makes sense to most people. If you have a child support order that says somebody's supposed to pay you know, $900 a month in child support, and they lose their job through no fault of their own. They're not fired for cause, but they get laid off because of some kind of you know, management restructuring or something like that. And they're between jobs. You know, they don't really have the ability to comply with that order. If Let's say they don't have the money saved up in a savings account or something like that. So it's really important to understand those burdens of proof and what you actually have to show that somebody has again, made a conscious decision to intentionally violate a court order, whether it's an agreement that's been, um, you know, incorporated into a court order or a court order that's just from a judge's decision because it was contested. Either way, they carry the same force and effect. And I, I want to talk about that because I think it's a wonderful from the defense side, uh, representing guys is the ability to comply. And we can talk about that when we talk about, you know, mentioned earlier, um, both prosecution and defense. But let me ask you about using it as leverage for modification. And, and I'm curious what your thoughts are, because I what comes to mind is I had a case about 15 years ago in which um, I represented a, a guy who retired uh, at normal retirement age and had <clears throat> a pretty hefty spousal support obligation. And it was getting to the point where he just couldn't afford it. And it was obvious. I mean, it was a large monthly obligation. 
And so at some point he decided to stop paying uh, to use it as leverage to get to a point where he could get her to consent to a modification. And good or bad decision, you know, it ultimately worked out in his favor. She, you know, got to a point where she really needed money um, to do it and then, you know, negotiate a lump sum just to be done with it. It was a really interesting, um, I guess, strategy. But what is your thoughts on using contempt for modification purposes? So it's something that I've actually um, had success doing in the past, and I think it's a pretty good strategy, although the caveat to that is that you have to be very deliberate and strategic about the way you're using it. Mm -hmm. um, and I've actually used it mostly on the, the flip side of what you described, where I'm the one who's filing the contempt petition and then using that as leverage for a modification. I don't think that I've ever really dealt with it the other way around, like you described. You know, obviously with that, I, I can't ever advise somebody to violate a court order, but I, I can tell them what might happen and how we could deal with it. Um, whether it's using it as leverage for modification, because it does happen. But speaking mm -hmm. from my own experience on the prosecution end of it, um, you know, generally the way it would work is you would file the contempt petition at the same time that you would file a new case for modification. What I've always done is, let's say it's an example um, or a situation where the um, mother of children is withholding parenting time from the father. And they've done it. There's well-documented um, history of the person doing it. I would file the contempt petition, obviously alleging violation of an order or agreement that has all the parenting provisions set forth in it. I would also file, if the facts are sufficient for this, file a modification action to either completely reverse custody, maybe give father more parenting time, um, maybe add more restrictions on what mother can and cannot do, you know, other things like that, or what I could request the court do as far as modifying the existing um, parenting plan. And I would file those both at the same time. The specific procedures for how this would proceed are gonna vary, of course, from state to state, but I think that they're probably pretty similar. So in South Carolina, I would set the contempt hearing at the same time, essentially, as the initial hearing, what we call a hearing on temporary relief for the modification case. And I would schedule them so that the contempt hearing would take place first, and then the, the modification hearing would take place immediately thereafter. I mean, like in the same courtroom with the same judge as soon as the other one is over. And this sort of goes back to why I said that you have to be very deliberate and really very sure of your evidence in the contempt case because what you the, the purpose of this and why you would do it this way is because you can get in front of a judge and you can have a contempt hearing which here is like a miniature trial all the rules of evidence apply it's testimonial you're going to put the other party on the witness stand you're going to cross-examine them you're going to confront them with documents you know text messages things like that and the judge is going to sit there and they're going to see all this. And really what you're trying to do is prime the judge for the modification. Obviously, you want to get relief for your client through contempt, um, you know, and, and attorney's fees and things like that. But really, the ultimate goal in these situations is the modification. So in that scenario, you've got the judge primed already. They've heard all these you know, terrible things that this other party is doing and how they've ignored the court's authority and don't care what an order says and that, you know, none of this applies to them. 
And then immediately after they've heard all that, after the judge has heard all that, you're asking them to modify the existing agreement or order, and they've already seen all the reasons why. And it's, it's almost getting around, um, in South Carolina at least, the procedural sort of roadblocks for a typical modification case where at your initial temporary relief hearing, it's not testimonial. Everybody's coming in there with affidavits that they're providing to the court. You don't have to exchange them until literally right before you walk into the courtroom or log into a virtual hearing. It's essentially trial by ambush. But in this way, you've, you've been able to paint the other party into a corner with your brilliant cross-examination mm -hmm. and everything. And yeah, you know, the judge has seen all this and they're, they're ready to go. Now, in South Carolina, in contempt um, proceedings, Judges do have authority as one of their methods of relief to modify an order as an incident of contempt. They rarely use it. They're yeah. pretty reluctant to. Um, and the reason that's another reason that you would file the modification case at the same time is frankly to give the judge an out. Yeah. Um, but right. it's been, it, it's been something that I started doing probably, I don't know, five or so years ago really connecting the two together to where in the judge's mind, it really all blends together. And it's a very effective strategy in my opinion. It is. I mean, I think as you suggest, the, the, the example that I had referred to is, is clearly the minority when you get a client that comes in and says, you know, I've decided on my own to, to, uh, to not obey an order for the purposes of trying to get an upper hand strategically. And like I said, luckily for him, it worked. He came in and, and by the time he came to us, He'd already, you know, developed the strategy, implemented the strategy, and she was already coming to the table saying, "Okay, I'm waving the white flag. You know, you're. I, I need the sixty-three thousand dollars you owe me." And um, I mean, technically, you know, the question became whether or not he had the ability to pay. He was retired. He probably didn't. Do he have other resources? Maybe. And she wound up resolving it. And it is the very minority to, to kind of induce a contempt action against yourself for the purpose of trying to resolve it. And uh, so, yeah, by the time he came to us, we were all, all we had left to do was to negotiate a resolution. But I think, as you suggest, from the other side, it is. And I think it's common, at least we're, we'll, we'll go to a contempt and a modification at the same time to give the court an out to show whether it's custody issues, not exercising certain things and or paying fair share of uh, unallocated um, expenses for health and, and, and extracurricular activities and all those things like that. Even in the toughest of times, there are usually opportunities for relief. Many husbands and dads listening now are struggling to stay current on alimony and child support orders. You should know that this crisis may allow you to modify your support obligations, but time is of the essence. If you're a guy needing help right now, not someday when things are back to normal, call us at Cordell & Cordell. This is what we do. But I think what's interesting is curious your thoughts about um, drafting, you know, with an eye towards the future. Like when you draft this contempt order or a subsequent order as a result of it, and what do you have to look out for if, as you look forward to perhaps future non-compliance with the court's order? So that's a good question too, and that's something that you know, as lawyers, um, I think regardless of what area of law you practice in, but certainly family court law. Um, it's important to be very precise with your language, whether it's orally at a, at a hearing, an oral argument to a judge, or probably more importantly, in the written form for orders and for agreements. And 
you really, you know, you, you'd always tell clients, you hope that, you know, frankly, you don't ever have to see them again after the, the case is over and everything, and you hate to have met them under those circumstances. But more often than, maybe not more often than not, but quite often you do hear from clients sometimes relatively shortly after a case is over about, um, questions about an agreement it's too vague or is what the other party doing violating this order and I, I try to spend a lot of time with clients really thinking about this particular provision that we're putting into this agreement or we're negotiating how do you see this playing out down the line in what ways might the other party take advantage of it to your detriment or just in what other ways might it cause a problem even if it's not through either party's fault. If it's vague and ambiguous language, I mean, that's sort of the, the number one red flag that you don't want to include in these agreements or any orders. I have clients from time to time try to say, let's make it intentionally vague or ambiguous so that I can try to use that to my advantage in the future. And while I understand the, the thought process behind it, I, I don't agree with it and I don't do it on purpose because it inevitably comes back to bite people. So you have to be, very, very precise about things. If you want a custodial exchange to take place at a certain time, put the time in yeah. the order. 6 p.m. means 6 p.m. I mean, I've had cases where, and clients have been right about this, I've had to put in the time zone too because I've had people um, kind of get a little a little cute with that, that type of thing. Yeah. Um, you know, if you want an exchange to take place at a certain location, it needs to be in there. And, and on that note, most cases that I see, people can work together to find a what we might call a mutually agreeable location approximately halfway between the party's residences. But a lot of times, it, they just can't get along for that, and you need to put it in the agreement because you know, a client generally has spent a lot of money on an attorney, and they want an outcome, or they really should be expecting an outcome that they can rely on moving forward because if they've yeah. spent tens of thousands of dollars to litigate a high high conflict custody case and then six months later they're looking at this agreement or this order and saying you know this isn't even really worth the paper it's printed on you've yeah. kind of you've done them a disservice and you, and you really want to make sure that you put them in a position to where they've achieved their goals to the extent that they can and that it's sustainable moving forward it is important. I mean, I think when I'm drafting these contempt orders and if I'm prosecuting them or defending them, I'm thinking, you know, 10 motions ahead. I'm thinking, okay, what happens in the event of this? What do I need to do to prepare for a motion to modify in the future? If it's talking about money, I'm thinking about what's my client's income? Can I set the standard here, you know, in this contempt order that I can point back to? You know, hey, uh, 12 months ago, court, you found that my client made $40,000 and now he's making 30. So we have a change in circumstances. You know, I'm thinking through it. It isn't just as motion sustained, motion denied. You know, I'm thinking, as you suggest, specificity is so important. And that, you know, we, we talk about it every podcast. And that is, you need to make sure there are great lawyers out there, great general practitioners, you know, guys that dabble in family law. They're good. But it really is important to find someone who practices exclusively in family law that is faced with these issues, that knows kind of what's going to go on and, you know, down the road. It's, you know, if I've got cancer, I'm, I, you know, a general practitioner may point me in the right direction, but ultimately I'm going to an oncologist, right? Because that's what they do. Right. And it's important. So a podiatrist, whatever it is, find it, a dermatologist. That's why they have these 
particular focuses in, in medicine is because you want to go to the person that sees it all the time. So as we kind of wrap up the segment, you know, I think it's important to talk about in contempt, which we dealt with for 13 months now is COVID-19 related issues when it related to custody and the exchange of custody, whether you have interstate or intrastate exchanges, how do you see COVID um, impacting contempt uh, in those issues? That's a great question, obviously relevant. Um, hopefully it won't be relevant for too much longer, but it is relevant um, and I've seen a lot of it. We dealt with COVID, I mean, from early on, um, one of the, the most remarkable COVID-19 issues um, was dealing with, um, uh, I think it was some artists, some music artists that had uh, left, I think, one from California to Oklahoma, and they were trying to deal with custody exchanges, and, and mom was hmm. refusing, and it's a contempt issue, right? So I'm curious what your thoughts are. No, you're right about that. And, you know, we've seen a lot of it here, just like I'm, I'm sure everybody's seen it in every jurisdiction. And, you know, unfortunately, it, it, it sort of plays into some parents' mentality um, to try to use a child as a pawn against the other parent, whether it's um, just because they they're still harboring resentment from a marriage that failed or a relationship that just didn't work out. Um, but it's, it's unfortunate to see it and judges really don't like it. Um, you know, everybody, you have to walk a line because everybody understands, okay, COVID-19 is a real situation that we're having to deal with. And judges like everybody else are concerned about it. You know, it's a public health emergency, but there's a line to where a parent cannot use that to just deny another parent's parenting time. And that, that's the way that it's seen most often. I really can't think of another, another context in which somebody's tried to use COVID-19, except for financially related if they've lost their job. But that, that's a little different. For custody-related issues, you know, what I've been successful in doing is showing a judge, look, if, if there is no demonstrated risk to a child that's related to the other parent, if that parent has not just openly flouted health precautions and CDC guidelines and local ordinances and things like that, the custodial parent has absolutely no right whatsoever to withhold a child. I mean, you can't, you can't withhold a child from somebody or really do anything else against a court order because you just happen to think for whatever reason the other party is going to put them in harm's way. I mean, you have to have some kind of demonstrated risk or a, a history of the person doing things like this. And I, and I will tell you that in, I, I think, every circumstance and when I've had to deal with it so far here, we've actually not to, had to have a contempt hearing because the other parties backed down off of it eventually. Yeah, yeah COVID um, just threw everything in into... It, it, we never experienced anything like it. I mean, it's not like a natural disaster. It was different. You know, you could you deal with contempt issues and travel issues in a hurricane or uh, earthquake, or and, and they seem to be different. But you you got people really captivated by fear with COVID, uh, and even you know a mile away, they were refusing to exchange custody because they were afraid of COVID trans transference. You know, and judges were understanding, and in some respects, they weren't. You know, you can't be, you know, really you can't hole up in your home especially when it hurts the child. So I think, you know, it's such an interesting dynamic and thankfully we are hopefully on the tail end and we're certainly seeing less of the issues related to COVID uh, and contempt. So uh, just a, you know, something certainly, but there may be guys who didn't do anything during COVID and they were denied custody. So they should seek, you know, 
contempt. There's something in, in Missouri right. called a family access motion, which allows you to recover lost time due to, uh, again, maybe a willful choice to deny or to not follow court order. It's kind of a pseudo contempt, which allows you to get to court on a much faster basis. They have a little bit broader authority for um, the remedies like time made up, attorney's fees. They can actually issue civil fines. Really interesting. So I would encourage people that are listening, check out what's what are the options here. Maybe contempt's a little too much. Maybe there's an interim step like this family access motion in Missouri that allows you to gain access to the courts on a much faster basis. So uh, it's good stuff, Ryan. Thanks for uh, enlightening guys on contempt because it. What better time to talk about it than COVID, which has really kind of impacted right. finances, custody everything crazy time crazy experience so thanks for joining ryan thanks scott thanks for having me well you know i know information like this it has more questions so we encourage you to set a consult at 866 Law. check us out on the web at cordellcordell.com more importantly check us out at the virtual town hall coming up here in march love to have you join but you got to register first it's where you can log in join the cordell and cordell panel of attorneys ask questions live and get answers right then and right there in the interim, if you just want to ask a question and we can answer it for you in the podcast or in the town hall, send us an email, townhalls at cordelllaw.com, townhalls at cordelllaw.com. So until next time, we'll see you next week with two more podcasts. Remember, subscribe to the podcast and we'll get alerted when there's new content material from us. Until then, have a great week.